this morning's going to be a little bit different in two ways. First, rather than jumping directly into the first commandment, this week we're just going to set up the rest of the series with a sort of introduction or overview of the Ten Commandments. So it's unusual. I usually am pretty close to the text, and this week a little bit, uh, just a little bit different approach. And then the second thing is that I am borrowing my outline. Okay, I wrote the sermon myself, don't worry. But the outline, even the main points, I reworded. But the outline comes from a pastor named Marshall Brown. I, I don't usually do this, but I listened to a sermon of his introducing the Ten Commandments a couple months ago. And as I've been preparing for this series, I kept coming back to it, and I thought, I really can't improve on that, so I'm just going to use it and give full credit where it's due. So uh, here is that outline. Four things that I want us to see this morning about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are grounded in God's character. The Ten Commandments sketch a beautiful life. The Ten Commandments reveal our sin. And the Ten Commandments drive us to Jesus. First, the Ten Commandments are rooted in God's character. The Ten Commandments are rooted in God's character. The Ten Commandments are God-given, literally. In the rest of Exodus and then in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, God speaks with Moses, as the Israelites asked, and then Moses communicates God's instructions to the people of Israel. But Exodus tells us that after Moses assembled all the people in Exodus 19, they prepared themselves, consecrated themselves, he led them to the foot of the mountain that's shaking, and there's thunder and lightning and fire and loud trumpets. And then how does Exodus 20 begin? And God spoke all these words. It's spoken directly in the hearing of all the people. All Israel hears these words. They're God-given, literally. In a sense, then, all Israel has direct access to these basic principles that God gives. And so later when Moses says, well, God says such and such, they can look back and sort of check his work, as it were. They can see, yes, these are indeed rooted in these basic principles God has given us, which in turn are rooted in God's own character. When God starts to speak in verse 2, he begins by saying, I am the Lord. Now, because the word Lord in English means a king or a boss, a master, someone like that, it sounds a bit like the Queen of Hearts in Alice in Wonderland, right? Sort of arbitrary authority. I'm the Lord, so here's some things I say to do, and you've got to listen to me. But remember, when we see Lord in our English Bibles in all capitals, that is uh, the English stand-in for God's personal covenant name that he gave to Moses at the burning bush. At the burning bush, Moses asks for God's personal name, and God answers, I am who I am. And then it gets shortened down, and we use Lord to stand in the place of that. Uh, Ethan and I are reading the two towers together. He's a ways ahead of me. I just finished the chapter where uh, Pippin and Mary meet Treebeard, the ant tree. And you'll remember they ask about his name, if you've read it. And Treebeard says, my name is very long, for my name is who I am. It's the whole story of my life from the beginning of the world until now. And in a sense, that is also true of the Lord. His name reflects who he is. So what he's saying in verse 2 is not, I'm the boss, you've got to listen to me and do what I say, some kind of Archie Bunker move. But rather, he's saying, I am who I am. This is my character, this is my nature, and therefore, this is who you must be if you're going to be my people. Mentally, we can read verse 2 before every commandment. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, do not murder. 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, honor your father and mother. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, do not steal. On down the list. Every one of these commandments goes back and it's rooted in that basic declaration. Because I am who I am, therefore this is who you must be. In the gospel reading from Matthew that we read earlier, remember how Jesus summarizes the whole law? It's all about loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbor as yourself. He says that's how you can summarize the whole law, what it's all about. And in the Christian tradition, we follow Jesus' own pattern, and we say the Ten Commandments is divided into two sets. Uh, The first four commandments talk about our duty towards God, how we love God. And then commandments six through ten talk about our duties towards our neighbor, how we love our neighbors. But remember what John tells us in 1 John 4? God is love. Uh, It's important to note, he doesn't say love is God, and whatever you think love is, that's what God's like. No, he says God is love. God's character defines love. It is love. It's his fundamental, essential nature. And then Jesus says all the law is teaching you how to love. It's reflecting God's own fundamental nature. It shows us, uh, the Ten Commandments then show us what love looks like. Okay, unless you're living under a rock, you've probably seen bumper stickers, yard signs saying love is love. Uh, and that's fine. People can put whatever they want on their cars. But in terms of personal ethics, it's a bit vacuous. It doesn't do anything for you. Love is love. X is X. Okay? What does that actually mean in the real world? Well, the Ten Commandments give structure to what love looks like. Love means being totally faithful to the Lord your God, not having other gods. It means Worshiping him in the way he's revealed himself to me. It means not uh, uh, using his name lightly, flippantly. It means honoring the day he tells us to honor. Loving our neighbor means specific things. It means honoring. It means protecting their life. It means protecting their wife. It means protecting their property. Uh, On down the list, okay? It tells us love looks like specific actions. We can make the same basic point that the Ten Commandments are grounded in God's own character using another attribute. God is holy. Kids will remember that was the first main point last week. That's behind all the images of God coming down on Mount Sinai, creation shaking. It's a holy Lord coming to meet his people. But if you were here last week, the key line from Exodus 19 is, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be to me a holy people. Here's how you as people can reflect my own character. So the Ten Commandments are not the arbitrary edicts of a capricious Lord. Rather, they are grounded in God's own character. I am who I am, therefore this is who you should be. This leads us to a second aspect of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments sketch for us a beautiful life. The Ten Commandments sketch for us a beautiful life. I know this is going to be a hard sell up front because we're not really into people telling us what to do these days. Uh, We don't like laws or regulations. It's hard to see how a disciplined life could be beautiful, at least at first glance. One of the big themes of the book of Exodus as a whole that I keep coming back to in this series is that the book moves from slavery under Pharaoh to freedom, not just absolute freedom to do whatever you want, but freedom in serving the Lord. Our modern idea of freedom is essentially negative. If no one's telling me what to do, then I'm free. But the biblical view of freedom is flourishing into what we're made to be, fulfilling our essential nature, being able to live up to our full potential. 
So then in the view of the Bible, to understand what it means to be free, we need to understand what we are made to be, what our essential nature is. Of course, human nature is one of the most debated contemporary questions, and I'm not going to get into detail there. I'm simply going to jump to the Bible's answer. In Genesis 1, it says that human beings are made in God's image after his likeness. This is something fundamental about human beings, that we're meant to be like mirrors that reflect God's own character in the midst of the world. That's what we're made to be. And so the Ten Commandments are a bit like an owner's manual. Your car manual, um, if you're unaware, there's probably one in your glove box, and it tells you important details like what pressure your tire should be inflated to, what weight oil to use, when to change the timing belt, how often to change the spark plugs, all these you know, fascinating things. Uh, and we tend to ignore that, but if you ignore it too long and you put the wrong weight oil in, you overinflate your tires, you don't change the timing belt, you never change the spark plugs, eventually your car is going to break down. But if you follow the maintenance schedule, uh, modern cars, you know, you can run them to 200,000 miles or more. That it, you keep maintaining it, you use it the way it's meant to be, and it will work well. On analogy, the Ten Commandments are a bit like an owner's manual for people. Congratulations on being a human being. Here's your owner's manual. Here's how to live so that you can image your creator during your time here on earth. In Exodus, and indeed in the whole Bible, this is freedom. Living according to our fundamental nature, what we were meant to be. It's a beautiful life flourishing according to what we were meant to be. And so remember that image in Psalm 1, the one who meditates on the Lord's Torah, his teaching, his Ten Commandments, day and night is like a tree planted by streams of water that the leaf does not wither, and all that he does prospers. Our Bible heading calls this section the Ten Commandments, and that's how it's often known. It's what I'm going to keep saying during this series, but that's not actually how the Bible refers to this. In Exodus 20, they're simply called these words. The Lord spoke these words. Uh, later in Exodus, they're called the Ten Words. Um, they are normative, they're binding, so in that sense they are commandments, but more than just commandments, they're meant to be instructions that give us guidance for how to live. They're instruction, principles, Torah, guidelines for life. So uh, the Ten Commandments then are a little bit, or, or sorry, I should gather myself. The Ten Commandments are, are, are not just commandments, but they're also statements of basic principles. And so the relationship between the Ten Commandments and everything that comes later in Exodus, and then Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all those other commandments, is a bit like the relationship between the U.S. Constitution and then all the various federal laws. You'll notice the Ten Commandments never specify any human penalties for breaking them. Uh, rather, they're basic ethical and religious principles. But Israel's constitution, as it were, doesn't begin with a bill of rights, but rather, as it were, a bill of responsibilities. See, the bill of rights is generally about, these are ways the government can't infringe upon your rights, and it shapes us as a people that we talk a lot about our rights. But the uh, Ten Commandments begin with a statement of responsibilities. Here's things that you need to do. We began with Psalm 119, and in that, one of the lines was this, I shall keep your law continually, and I shall walk in a wide place. By following these laws, David doesn't say I'm constricted to a very narrow path, 
But rather, he says, in following your laws, in keeping your law continually, I find true freedom. It's a wide open place. Eight of the commands are negative rather than positive. They're saying, don't do this. Okay, they don't say you have to marry this kind of person. They say, don't commit adultery. They don't say you have to do this to make your income. It says, don't steal your neighbor's stuff. Okay? It just says the extreme things not to do. But in positive terms, there's a breadth of freedom open to us. But more than simply stating first principles, the Ten Commandments sketch for us a beautiful life. They guide us towards virtue, the good life, true beauty. Again, we're swimming upstream at this point. Uh, it's not something that we normally think of as a virtuous life as being beautiful. In the nature of the case, it's just a, a, a sketch. It's not detailed. It's just an outline. But young people especially, I hope that this series will provoke you to reflect on what kind of life you want to live. Um, I hope this isn't too flippant, but compare with me for a moment two cultural artifacts that depict two different ways of life. Okay, on the one hand, you have Pitbull's Mr. Worldwide, the worst song ever written. If you don't know what it is, it's all about, you know, I go around the world and I have one night stands with women in every country. Uh, and it glamorizes an adulterous lifestyle. And maybe it seems hip for a moment, but is it truly beautiful? Think, on the other hand, the beginning of Disney's Up. Remember the beginning of Up? Uh, I forgot the guy's name, but they, the, uh, Carl and Ellie. Thanks, uh, Kelsey, filling me in there. Carl and Ellie, they're 10 years old. They meet. They fall in love. You, and then through that montage, you see them marry. You see them go through the joys of life, getting jobs, buying a house. You see them through the sorrows of life, miscarriage and ultimately Ellie's death when she's 70. Which is really the beautiful life? There's a lot of money and advertising spent on making you think that this sort of flashy lifestyle is attractive. But the truly beautiful life is, 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 is the way of fidelity. And that's what the Ten Commandments pin, po points us towards. And I'm just using one example, the, the uh, Seventh Commandment here. But you can extrapolate with all sorts of commandments. Okay, the tough guy who threatens violence might seem attractive at first. And yet one who does not murder and protects his neighbor's life is ultimately the beautiful path in life. Third, uh, so the Ten Commandments point, uh, 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 sketch for us what a beautiful life looks like. But third, the Ten Commandments reveal our sin. The Ten Commandments reveal our sin. Not only do they sketch a beautiful life, but they provide a standard for evaluating our own lives, our actions, our attitudes, our behavior. Without a target, you can't miss while you're shooting arrows. Without a curfew, you can't be home late uh, when you're out with your friends. You've got to have a standard in order to miss it. And in a sense, the Ten Commandments then provides a standard. It sketches a beautiful life, but it also reveals when we've fallen short. Although this is part of Israel's law, and so it served in Israel's society as part of their civil law code, the Ten Commandments are given by God. And so when we break the Ten Commandments, it is rebellion against God's own authority. In short, it is sin. We sometimes use a confession from the Book of Common Prayer that includes this line. We have sinned through our own fault in thought and word and deed and in what we have left undone. And the Ten Commandments, as you look across them, contain a similar breadth of thoughts, words, and deeds. The first four commandments about loving God, they start with our thoughts. Don't have other gods. Don't make idols uh, in the way you picture God. 
And then it goes to our words, don't use God's name flippantly, and then to our deeds, work six days, take the seventh day off. And then when we turn to loving our neighbor, the pattern reverses. It starts with deeds, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and then it goes to our words, don't bear false witness, and it ends with our thoughts, with our hearts. Do not covet your neighbor's house, do not covet anything of your neighbor's. So it goes full circle, words to deeds and thoughts and back again. And what it's implying to us is that all the commandments have implications for our thoughts, our words, and our actions, and they also imply duties that if we leave them undone, means we've broken God's commandments. So we see this, this pattern, this logic of the Ten Commandments working out in a number of Bible illustrations all go quickly. Uh, think of the story of David and Bathsheba. It begins when David sees Bathsheba bathing, and maybe that's by accident, but then he chooses to look, and he starts to covet, and what, uh, breaking the 10th commandment, and what does it lead to? Adultery, breaking the 7th commandment, uh, lying, breaking the uh, 9th commandment, murder, breaking the 6th commandment. King Ahab coveted his neighbor's garden. Starts by breaking the 10th commandment, his heart attitudes. But then what does it lead to? Again, bearing false witness, breaking the ninth commandment. Murder, breaking the sixth commandment. The Ten Commandments end with this focus on our hearts and our thoughts, cueing us into the reality that disordered desires, coveting, leads to all sorts of wicked behavior. In the Christian tradition, when Thomas Cramer talks about our thoughts, words, and deeds, he's going back to Jesus' own exposition of the law in the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere. Uh, Jesus consistently takes what we might call a fruit and root approach. Uh, you know when you're weeding and you try and get a weed out and just the leafy part breaks off and the root's still there and you think that is gonna be up next week, I'm gonna have to deal with it again. Well, that's kind of Jesus' approach to these sorts of issues. He's saying we can't just look at the fruit, we've gotta look at the root as well. So fruit and root. Uh, look, you think you've got a perfect life because a specific fruit hasn't shown up in your life because you don't see the leafy weeds. Underneath the surface, there's all sorts of roots that could produce those fruit if left unchecked. Hear this fruit and root reasoning uh, from just one example. You've heard it said of old, you shall not murder. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Saying, look, the fruit of murder may not have cropped up in your life, but if you have these things going on, the root is there. The basic condition is there. Following Jesus' lead, the Reformed catechisms tease out all sorts of various implications. So the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 36, asks, what is forbidden by the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. I pick this as an example because at least most of us in this room, maybe everyone as far as I know, would probably say, at least I haven't broken that commandment. At least I have not murdered whatever else I've done. But listen to what the Westminster Larger Catechism says is involved or forbidden in the sixth commandment. The sins forbidden in the sixth commandment are all taking away the life of ourselves, or of others, except in cases of public justice, a lawful war, or necessary defense. Okay, so don't take your own life, don't take others' life, there is a few exceptions. But it also includes the ne neglecting 
or withdrawing the lawful and necessary means for the preservation of life. You take away someone's means of life, it's as good as murdering them. It includes sinful anger, hatred, envy, the desire for revenge, all excessive passions, distracting cares, immoderate use of meat, drink, labor, recreation. Okay, if you overindulge in meat or drink, you're killing yourself. It breaks the sixth commandment. If you are a workaholic or you do too much recreation, it's inhibiting your life from being what it ought to be. Moreover, provoking words, oppression, quarreling, striking, wounding, and whatsoever else tends to the destruction of the life of any person is forbidden. Okay, that's all the roots. That's the sort of attitudes, thoughts that can lead to this. Now, again, who of us have broken the sixth commandment? Let's, be, let's make it easier. Who, who didn't break the sixth commandment driving to church today? And, and even I'll give you a bonus point. If it's only towards other cars, you get a pass. If it's not towards people in the car with you that you had some of these attitudes, okay? Uh, we all have the root in our own hearts that produces these fruit. We like to think we have not broken God's commandment, but the more we meditate on it, the more we look at it, it's like one of those vanity mirrors with the light around it that magnifies your pores, and all of a sudden you realize, I do have things on my face that I, you, do you know what I'm talking about? I, I've seen them in hotels, but uh, maybe you guys have some in your home that you know what kind of thing I'm talking about. So that's what the law's like. It reflects to us who we really are, and if we hold it as the standard, we realize that we are all law breakers, that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so that leads us to the fourth aspect of the law. It doesn't just show us how bad we are. It drives us to Jesus. The Ten Commandments drive us to Jesus. As we heard earlier in the assurance of pardon, we have all sinned. Certainly that is true. We have all broken the Ten Commandments. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all rebelled against his authority. We've broken his law. We have all made ugly messes of our life. And so what hope is there? The Ten Commandments don't just show us the problem, but they drive us. They point us to Jesus, the answer. In the first gospel reading this morning, Jesus told his disciples he did not come to abolish the law. He didn't say, you know what, the Ten Commandments are too hard, let's get rid of that and just kind of be nice and that's good enough. No, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. I didn't come to relax it and make it easier, but to drive it home to the heart condition, to show you that you've all broken the law, but then also to fulfill it so you can still have a hope to be a holy people and have a relationship with God. If we look back over the three points that we've already seen this morning, the first three points, it shows us Jesus. The Ten Commandments are grounded in God's character. In Jesus, the eternal God, the Son of God, who totally possesses every divine attribute, who reflects God's character perf perfectly, became human. In a few months at Christmas, we're going to celebrate that God's character was fully and perfectly revealed in a few pounds of human flesh, born in obscurity in a manger. It's hard to wrap your head around, and yet it's true. This man, Jesus, shows us God's character. He fulfills the Ten Commandments. And Jesus' life was a beautiful life. If the Ten Commandments are a sketch of the beautiful life, the Gospels show us Jesus' life, in Jesus' life, the finished painting. Okay, it's like the early sketches that Leonardo does or, or, or Van Gogh or something. 
Jesus' life is the finished painting that those were just preparation for. The stereotype of someone who keeps God's law is they're a rule follower. They're not much fun to be around, maybe a bit of a stickler or a wet blanket, certainly not someone you would want to invite to a party. What do we see in the Gospels? Jesus doesn't do away with the law, he fulfills it, and yet everybody wants to spend time with him. He's constantly getting invited to parties. He gets invited to the religious leaders' parties, he gets invited to the sinners' parties. People want to spend time with him. He lives an attractive life, a beautiful life. He shows us, it's like a master class or a virtuoso performance. He shows us what the law is meant to look like when it's lived out perfectly. We have fallen short of God's glory in Jesus' life. We see the full glory of God's law lived out. It's dynamic, it's exciting, it draws you in, it's attractive, it's beautiful. But fulfilling the law means even more than that. The law shows us that we are all sinners, that we are meant to bear God's image, but we've marred that image through our rebellion against him. He takes the penalty that we deserve for breaking God's law. The king who gives the law to us comes down from his throne and takes the punishment that we deserve so that we can continue to live as his people. Romans 3 that we already heard in the assurance of pardon. The exodus from Egypt is described as God redeeming his people. Romans 3 says we all have redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but the righteousness of God, which the law testifies to, has been manifested apart from the law in Jesus. It says we're justified. We have right standing with God. We can come into his presence as his people by his grace gift. The king has come down and taken our penalty so that we can enter the throne room. Specifically, it says Christ Jesus was put forward as a propitiation by his blood. It's an unusual word, propitiation, but it's important. I think it's only used twice in the ESV, but the idea is Jesus not only covered our offense, as it were, like we deserve jail and, and, and we're all criminals, he covered the offense so that we like break even, but even more than that, he, he makes us in positive standing. So as it were, as far as God's concerned, we're the leading citizen that you'd give the keys to the city to, or that you'd the fair parade marshal, or someone that would be honored in the city, not just from prison. The Ten Commandments are grounded in God's character. They sketch for us what a beautiful life looks like. They reveal our sin, and they drive us to Jesus. As we end, just three applications, and again, these, I... It's a clever alliteration, so I have to confess it's not from me. It's from the other sermon by Marshall Brown. But three things that I hope that we learn and that we do during this series. The first, look and love. First, us to learn the Ten Commandments. Okay? If you're younger, maybe this is the first time you'll actually learn the commandments and you'll be able to figure out which one's the seventh and the eighth and that sort of thing, and that would be great. For those of us who are older, maybe we have that down. We more or less know what they say, but I want us to learn them to get them down into our heart, to understand what they're really saying, to be people who live out the way of grace that the Ten Commandments portray for us. Second, I want us to look, to look to Jesus. As the commandments reveal to us ways we've fallen short, I want us to look to the one who has redeemed us. And finally, I want us to grow in love. If, as we study the Ten Commandments, we don't grow in our love for God and our neighbor, then we're not doing it right. 
Okay, if focusing on the Ten Commandments makes us more self-righteous and judgmental and obnoxious to the people around us, we've missed something. As we're learning the Ten Commandments, Jesus says it's all about loving God, loving our neighbor. So as we learn them, we should realize that we are sinners and have more compassion for others who have broken the law. We should become more loving people, both towards God and towards our neighbor. So learn, look, love the Ten Commandments. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you have given us your law. It feels weird to say because we are so naturally disinclined to have people tell us what to do. And yet your Ten Commandments, your law, teach us what a beautiful life looks like. Give us a desire to live the sort of life we see in Christ, the sort of life we see outlined in your word in the Ten Commandments. Lord, we know ourselves to be sinners. I hope that every single one of us recognizes that we have done things wrong that deserves punishment. Drive us once again to Christ Jesus, the one who has made a way for us to be free from our sins, who has redeemed us from our bondage, who has set us free, who has brought us into your presence. As we study your Ten Commandments in the coming weeks, I ask that you would give us eyes to see what your law is teaching us, that we would be open to having our hearts examined by your Holy Spirit, that we would respond well, changing the way that we live in response to your word. We offer these prayers in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.